G'day everyone, I'm Greg Ryan and welcome to episode 18 of Rare and Resilient 1 in 5000 podcast and today we are extremely fortunate to be joined by Associate Professor Rebecca Rentia who is the Director of the Comprehensive Colorectal Centre at Children's Mercy Hospital in Missouri, Kansas City and Rebecca is a paediatric surgeon. So hi Rebecca, welcome to our podcast. Greg, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's really exciting, and I've been fortunate to know you early, a few years all the way from some of my early training and to interact with you at conferences. And so kind of coming full circle here is is an honor for me to be part of this community. Oh, I'm, I'm just so glad you are, and you play a very important part in our global community with all the work you do for ARM kids and their families. So if you'd like to just give us a bit of a background on your resume. Yeah. So the big, the big highlights here are that in the U.S., we go through adult general surgery training. Then usually most people that have done that have also had a few years of additional research thrown into their into the full residency. So it ends up being about seven years. I then went on to a pediatric surgery fellowship at Children's Mercy in Kansas City. And while I was in the early months of my fellowship, I was extremely um, inspired to take care and to be part of the care of children with Hirschsprung's and anorectal malformation. And I had only met Dr. Levitt when I was interviewing at the other centers And so kind of his um, uh, meeting him, um, going to all the other centers, started to kind of plan to see that there is something that is special about taking care of children long-term beyond a surgery. So I then um, pursued additional pediatric surgery training in colorectal and pelvic reconstruction at Nationwide Children's Hospital for a full year and then came back to Children's Mercy to begin the Comprehensive Colorectal Center. And so it's a multidisciplinary group. We have nurse practitioners and nurses, and I bring them out first before I talk about all the additional people that I get to work with, because they really end up being the core and the support that is the everyday additional care that's needed beyond a surgical intervention. And that's so incredibly important when it comes to our condition, isn't it? That yeah. it's not just the, the surgeon, it's the aftercare, it's the nurses. As you say, it's the multidisciplinary care. Yeah, really getting down to just the very basics is do you, one of the patients gave me feedback early when I started the center and they told me, how was it when they called on a phone? What was their experience of trying to get through to have a question answered? And that really gave me some perspective within the first weeks of being new staff that families need to be able to access and talk to you and have questions and that not every question should result in emergency room visit. And so that kind of dialogue and that ability to access really does start with the rest of the team. So as I mentioned, you know, it's, it's our, it's our whole support team. And then I additionally work with a GI doctor, which is special because it's not just a surgeon, but it's a different perspective that brings in the medicine a psychologist, neurosurgeon, urologist, gynecologist, psychologist, et cetera. So a really special center. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. And that brings us to one of the main reasons why we, we have you on the podcast this week is that 
your colorectal center team have done a really, really important paper that's been released in the last couple of months called the Psychosocial Factors Affecting Quality of Life in Patients with Anorectal Malformation and Hirschsprung's Disease, a qualitative systematic review. As everybody who's listened to the podcast know that I'm incredibly passionate about the mental health side of the ARM patients. So can you just give us a bit of a background about how that came about and let, then we'll get into sort of like how the results of the, and the, how the discussion ended up going? Yeah, so working with our child psychologist, I began to understand that there is a lot more that is beyond kind of having a visit where somebody says, how do you feel? Or this whole you know, kind of this whole experience going through the healthcare system with ARM, Hirschsprung's, cloaca, et cetera, is stressful. There's something that is more than that. And so having some of those conversations, I began to understand that at different parts of a child's and family's life within this, you know, journey, uh, they go through different aspects that are more or less important in the care. And so we we looked for articles that would kind of explain at what levels and at what ages are there different uh, concentrations on different needs for children and families. And we didn't find anything. What we found instead was that there was many well done, but very focused articles on bowel management. There was articles on, you know, uh, very small, smaller cohorts because the disease itself is rare. It's, you know, one in 5,000. Correct. Um, <laughs> and uh, kind of putting that all together, there was specific scales that were only used in one paper. And we really wanted to review all of the papers that had been written in the past 20 plus years and say, excluding some of the very bowel management focused papers, what are the themes? And so that is that was the premise of our paper is to examine the literature and give background and some structure to what has been written for many, many years. Yeah, I was just having a look at the uh, the report and is you've gone through hundreds of articles published between 1980 and 2019. I would say your first friend is a librarian because when you do these reviews, to be scientific, you have to say what type of review are you doing? Because if you ask a question and you get the right team together to answer that question, you then at least are able to say what the literature does show or what others have worked on. And so we did a huge literature poll with the assistance of a librarian to get all of those articles. And we ended up with 481 articles. And that's where the work really started because you then have to organize them. And that's why it's called a systematic review. So there's a process. And we began to exclude them and kind of getting into some of those details. You look for ones that have the exact same, either they were published twice by mistake or they're recorded in the system as twice. They're in a different language that is not translated. And by the time we got done, we had 63 full scientific articles. And those articles are really dense. Um, and they're about eight pages a piece that we then reviewed. It must have taken you a long time to do it. <laughs> it did. Okay. What we might do is just uh, talk about uh, the study and what it involved. It was focused on children from birth to 21 
and I see you've done it in sections for infants, children, adolescents, and young adulthood. So our first our first category that we looked at was infancy. In infancy, there is not a lot of research to really highlight what the stressors or the difficulties are that parents face. There is, you know, we found probably like three, four papers that talked specifically about anorectal malformation in Hirschsprungs. And what we found is that infants that had to go to larger hospitals probably caused the most stress to families because essentially anorectal malformation, Hirschsprung disease are for the majority of families a surprise diagnosis. And so these are families that are not anticipating to have a major medical discussion. Potentially their child is in a life-threatening situation. And now the child is being transported away from them. And on the back end, this is, they're coming from hospitals often that may not have all of the resources to be able to now support the family, not only through the traumatic experience of finding their infant and kind of going to this new hospital through social work, through resources, you know, kind of anything both psychosocially for the parent, but also then to get to their child and to be able to do that regularly. So the literature did talk about having a lot of issues with local health assistance as a barrier to making the transition for parents, both through to the hospital where their child was located, but then also in being able to go home after a surgical intervention had been performed. There was a it seemed to be a focus too on how the mothers especially felt isolated, feared for what was happening to their child once they left their arms to go to another hospital. Yeah. Um, the, you know, one study that we looked at that was um, looking at children um, in India really talked about the mother's perinatal experience as over 75% feeling emotionally uh, separated, uh, feeling fear, sadness, and confusion. And I think that really speaks to a majority of families' experiences because the confusion comes from what is happening. You know, a lot of times, as many families that are listening to our podcast know now, there may be more than one surgery involved. So what is going to happen? What's happening right this moment? How will this impact my child? And I think the emotional number of questions that just come at you are overwhelming. And so uh, that study really looked at that. And then what was extremely interesting is that in none of these articles, especially in infancy, did they talk about the fathers? Yes, yes. That was the one that was my next thing. And that and I see that so much in the groups as well, because 95% of the people in the support groups are the mothers. There doesn't seem to be a recognition of the father's role in the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. And bringing it to real life, who are the first people that I actually talk to who are able to leave another hospital is the fathers. So they're sitting at their NICU infant's baby's bedside. So that's actually the first people that I do talk to are the fathers who did come with their infants from a referring hospital. And so that is a whole, you know, that's this, that's a group that we haven't really talked to that there that's pivotal that, you know, they're bringing that those experiences kind of back. They're the interpreter of those experiences as well. 
and they're trying to communicate back to their wives or partners back in another hospital. And so from your personal experience, how do you find talking to the father when most of the majority of time, I'd imagine the mother is not with the child at the start. How do you handle that part of it? Well, I, I think we give ourselves, at least when you have the opportunity to have more conversations based on this is 80 to 90% of my elective practice. This is kind of all the types of surgery I do. I try to be one of the first people to have those conversations because they're seeing so many people. They've met the transport team. They've met an intake nurse. They've met somebody who's trying to get an IV line in the arm. The family has met the you know various caretakers, the resident, the PICU resident, the pediatrics resident. And so I try to be one of the people, or at least have my team work to understand that you need to sit down, that you need to kind of take one step back and say, congratulations. Yeah, that's important. I, I isn't it? Yeah. Congratulations that you have a newborn infant. And I saw that from um, Dr. John Densmore when I was a resident at the Medical College of Wisconsin, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. He would always say that as a first thing. And I think that that is so important is first acknowledge that you have a beautiful newborn infant, that this family, you know, there's more. This is, you know, don't launch into when is surgery? What are you going to do? These are the first hours. So um, I, I would say that that's how I start. And then to kind of really broad strokes of say, this is a new surprise diagnosis you know, this is kind of what we anticipate. You're going to meet a hundred people. Every time your child goes somewhere, there will be crowds around your child's bedside to do sign outs. Don't be alarmed because the first thing you, you know, you kind of turn the corner and there you have 50 people gathered around a child's bedside. That either means that they're coding and like are needing chest compressions and it's scary or that there's just a sign out. So you, I kind of try to give them a little bit of an idea of what what will this look like just for day-to-day purposes? Now, as far as the recommendations when it came to the um, the infancy, and with, with the infancy, what ages do you, do you include as infants? I would say probably within the first month to two months. Okay. In in our paper, we, we kind of did it broadly as neonatal. So probably, you know, it, it was it was quite unclear in many of the papers. I would say any time that the first surgery had already been done, it was probably around four to five months. And so we had a cutoff of expressing that this was neonatal somewhere in the paper. All right. So is that sort of like after the PSAP, they then you classify them till, till then or? It, it was kind of like right before the PSARP. So okay. um, early workup, um, maybe primary PSARP. Uh, again, it was, it was quite vague and there was very few papers. Yeah, so, so what do you think were the main points that came out of that part of it? Yeah, so we found four points that we recommend based on our review. The first one was clear, complete, and frequent communication between families and providers, especially for families that spend a longer time in the ICU. Community and home health support, social work and resource assistance, meaning that it is assumed that everybody will be able to easily come and visit their child and go back and forth to home and arrange, rearrange work, but that that needs to be supported. And then finally, and I think most importantly, 
psychosocial support for the caregivers, that it's not just assumed that they are a pillar of strength that has unlimited ability to have bounce back and you know be that strength for everybody else in the extended family, but that they get support themselves. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that really has become evident in my time on the in the support groups and all that is that a lot of the mothers suffer from some sort of PTSD. I think you could probably describe it as, would you? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that actually takes sometimes a lifetime to unpack and to support if done well or right. Yeah, that's very important. Okay, the next thing we'll next one we'll go to is the. the children, and that that includes the the learning to go to school or to um, preschool or whatever. So, what were the main th- things that came out with the uh, children section? Yeah. So, in the children section, what we noted was that there was a lot of emphasis on uh, school absenteeism. There's a transition that goes on between a child that is allowed or is able to miss school in kindergarten or pre-K where, you know, a day doesn't really set you back. But then as they transition to the early grades, those absentees can really add up and impact the health and their ability to progress in the grades well. The other thing was an emphasis on peer relationships. So how do they interact with other children and how do they interact with siblings? Then there was a lot of discussion about behavioral problems. And we're not talking here only named, you know, severe disorders or issues. Are you talking about sort of like ADHD, autism and such? Right, exactly. I'm talking here more along the lines of anxiety. Oh, adjustment, um, that that there was a much higher predominance in the groups that were interviewed. And that's even from the parent perspective, not necessarily that these papers interviewed children, because that's a whole different type of consent process for many of these papers. So they didn't actually talk to children. These are, these are what the parents were able to pick up on. And then anxiety and issues in the how the parents were able to support children and how that translated into relationships in early childhood. Right. And the bullying and peer rejection part of it, uh, I know that was mentioned in one of the areas How, and that's something that all parents have, that's one of their greatest fears is the teasing and if the child has accidents or if they're showing any signs of soiling, et cetera, or the smell and that. What, what did you find in that? Regard. So not enough to kind of highlight that not enough. The papers really talk that there was a large component of children that had that. And in, in one study, in one country, they found that 50% of children that had an ostomy actually stopped going to school. And I think that that actually underscores what is not highlighted in several of the other papers, which is how much families may change their child's environment based on what they're going through in a school setting. So there may be, you know, if the child has a metrophanoff or a mace and there's leakage from both, 
or those those channels are not able to actually have the full intended outcome, meaning no urinary accidents, no stooling accidents. And suddenly you're dealing not only with the, either the surgical intervention, how it's supposed to work, and then what it's supposed to try to fix. But that's a lot. Those are many absentees. Those are many ways. Those are many opportunities basically for the child to undergo bullying and have issues at school. Yeah. One of the things that's really stood out to me as children mature, some suffer from traumatic memories related to their medical care. One study said 36% nonverbal memories of dilations, and another study said 60% demonstrated distress when their anus was exposed. Yeah. And this really underscores the recent paper that came from Richard Wood and Mark Levitt that I was an author on it um, that, that really talks about there is much that we don't know, um, but dilations themselves are known to be difficult for families. I mean, that is one of the most challenging aspects, especially for anorectal malformation. And I hope that it's falling a bit out of favor for Hirschsprungs. There's, there's not um, a, and enough papers have been written. Jack Langer is one of the kind of top authors in that category that dilations are not routinely needed for um, Hirschsprungs, but for anorectal malformation, that those memories may actually last. And not only are they lasting for the family, but depending on the dilations and the experience that goes on into childhood as something that may be retained as a trauma by a child. Yeah. I can vouch from for someone myself, like the enemas, I couldn't say the word for 50 years because of the trauma, just the, the thought of it of right. coming back to me. And, and I hope that that paper that um, I know you had Richard Wood as a guest. Yes. And I listened, I listened to that podcast recently. It was fantastic. I recommend that all listeners <laughs> do listen to that one and listen to all the podcasts. But he talks that he, he discusses that trial. It was a randomized control trial. And really what's found in that study is that you, there's many, many, many children, I think the overwhelming majority that qualify for not having dilations. Essentially surgery has progressed enough to have minor procedures that can be done as a day surgery to rescue if needed, many of the anal openings that have um, decreased in size too much. As they say, talk to your surgeon today. Yes, very, very good advice. Now, this one, I think, is going to be of great interest to the parents, especially. I'll just read it as I quote. Parental response to a child's illness can significantly influence the child's self-perceptions, emotional responses, and capacity to manage healthcare crises. Positive parental responses led to to an overall improved quality of life in children and help patients cope and adapt to medical conditions. So can you just talk about that? Because I think that's a really important thing for the parents. Yeah, that's, I, I would say that that comment, what we found in the literature really surprised us, but it is also a theme that shows up in adolescence. And that is the more that families were perceived by the children as supportive, the less inter- family anxiety there was and less stress between the child and the caregiver and the better they were able to adjust 
and have also sibling relationships at home. So it's, it's scary because it, it kind of puts us back again to looking at an otherwise unsupported group, right? The family at this point is supposed to be helping the child and yet they need an equal amount of support that right now I would say, I don't know, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it comes a lot from other families right now, the support groups, such as ones that you've created. It's beyond that. And I don't know that we have a good system in place to help right now. Yeah. And following up from that, one of the other parts of that, it says parents of children with ARM also require psychosocial support as many struggle, struggle with guilt, anxiety, and depression surrounding the child's diagnosis. Parents of children and AR, with ARM score significantly higher on financial, social, and personal strain assessments than control families. That, I mean, yes, it really goes beyond the actual surgery. And at this point, there may not be any more staged surgeries. Now it is, how are we focusing on the quality of life? What are the outcomes of that surgery? And then now we, we have a child who's going into whole new situations every day and needs to be supported by a family member who's still, still remembering the early days. Yeah, that, that, it's extremely important. And I'm, I'm so glad it's, it's been recognized formally, if that makes sense, because I see it every day in groups and other par- people see it in groups and, and talking to parents and that you can see you can see it. It's it's t- it's tangible, but to actually see it on a paper of, of this magnitude, it, it just validates. I think as well. Yeah. Okay. Now, what about if we get to the recommendations of the children part? So the recommendations here are essentially children need psychosocial evaluation and treatment. I would say that this is not kind of looking for something, but this is to make sure that something is not missed and to support any issues such as anxiety around new situations, school, the medical condition, et cetera. Have toilet training supports in place. Children may need, you know, something simple such as a note or discussion about how they're able to better go to the toilet, where they can have an extra outfit, how they can be able to fit into a classroom without being singled out, talking to teachers, et cetera. Discussion of barriers to play and socialization. So really evaluating that entire home interaction, school interaction that has nothing to do with, is my bowel management plan working, but to actually sit there and talk about it. And I'm a surgeon and I'm just lucky that I get to work with other doctors who take that opportunity and really talk to the family, because I don't know that I, as an alone practitioner would do it well enough to also kind of make sure I'm talking about those aspects. And then finally to assess for bullying and evaluate resource medical therapy needs, such as an IEP plan or a section 504 plan. Okay, for, for people who are listening to the podcast outside of America, a 504 plan is just, can you just explain yeah. what that is? So a 504 plan is a blueprint or a plan for how the school will provide support and remove barriers for a student with a disability. 
What it does is that it provides services and changes to the learning environment to enable students to learn alongside their peers. And this should be instituted at no cost to a family. And it's a collaboration between the educator, the physician, the family. An IEP plan is an individualized education program, and it's a blueprint for the child's special education experience at school. So it provides an individual special education and related services to meet the child's unique needs. And in essence, the basic difference between an IEP and a 504 plan can be summed up in one sentence. Both plans provide for accommodations, but only the IEP plan provides for specialized instruction. So the 504 essentially makes the environment appropriate for what the child needs, but the IEP plan says, how is that learning special or needing to be modified? Okay. So if you are in England or Europe and they don't have these plans, what would you suggest to the parents the best way for them to generate correspondence to the school? Yeah. So I would say start early. Um, Our most successful families, we have this discussion potentially a year in advance. It's not something that you kind of get overnight in response to a stress or a difficult kind of, and I think many families know that. We work with social work, child psychology, the school, the parents. The parents are often, unfortunately, have to be the go-between. We can provide some templates and help, but the family kind of vocalizes that. And so for a location where there's not a full system in place, first understanding that even if you look at the US and compare, there's many great websites that kind of immediately pop up to show you what parts of the plans may apply to your child. Developing a template and any type of letter that outlines a bit what the child needs Many educators want to help. So if they know what to do or they're told exactly how they can help, I believe that they're receptive. Oh, that, so that's, that's the first step. Oh, that's great. That's great. Now, what we might do now is go into the adolescence section, which starts to get more into that transition from and the child start to understand what their body is and how they are a bit different in in some aspects? Yeah. So in the adolescence, what we found reviewing the literature was that there is much more discussion around gaining independence, the uh, view of body image, a lot of questions about self-esteem and how children are able to, they've spent a lifetime of coping And now it's how do they feel because they've internalized much of what they've gone through. And a lot of the body images really begin to kind of talk about their worry about future sexual relationships, how they identify as themselves within those relationships and kind of um, this amorphous, the future. So you know, kind of understanding that they may be in charge or responsible for what they're going through and how, what the world has out there for them. Was there much spoken about 
for the children to gain their independence and the parents because they've cared for the child all their lives and now the child sort of like wants to move away a bit the independence and that you know but yeah that privacy as well greg this is again where they really say that the children are looking for acceptance from their parents and immediate family and that that is a source of a lot of anxiety was how does the family view them how do they gain that independence i think that is something that providers should talk about early is you know you have an 8 year old but that may not be the appropriate time to just hand them all of their supplies for bowel management and say you you know you do it it's how do you grade that experience so that when they're a teenager that they have been helped with understanding how can i be clean how can i be dry how do i fit in with my peers so that they know what the results should be for what they're experiencing kind of creating that um stability in the framework of their condition yep one thing that really stood out to me there was mention about the factors that can have a profound impact on the patient's overall quality of life and psychiatric health in one study 85 primary and secondary school age patients with arm completed a disease impact questionnaire 80% of these youth suffered from at least one behavioural problem, anxiety, depression, or low self-esteem. Yeah. And what we could not find in the literature was, were these children that also had additional, you know, it was not an isolated ARM, but that there was more variations in their medical complexity, or was this an isolated, you know, kind of one surgical problem that they were ever dealing with? But 80% means that there's that there's likely a huge under-recognized group that has this, the anxiety. In the paper, they also found that there is upwards of 30 to 50% of children are struggling with school itself. And up to 30% were in specialized education classes, but that when they were tested for IQ, they were matched with peers, but it points to how long and how much missed school or variations in their education led up to that need for specialized instruction. And I'd imagine too, a lot of times where a child, an adolescent's having a bad day, really the focus becomes all-encompassing, whereas you're focusing on can anybody know I'm having a bad day? You know, do I smell? Do I show soiling or whatever? And I, I'm, I know that that can affect you at school because your focus is totally on yourself and how that, that comes back to the self-esteem part of it. Yeah. You know, what we found was that 27% had externalizing features. What does that mean? That means aggressive or delinquent behaviors. And I think at this point, what you can see when you kind of extrapolate a bit what happens in the literature is that all of this coping, all of the independence that they've gained, the focus now is not anymore on saying, well, how is that bowel management going? How have you felt through all that? How have you coped? It's now the child has taken all that on. Many times families are no longer in the toilet with their children. 
Yep. The family doesn't really understand, is the bowel management working perfectly? Are they having accidents once a week? You know, like what's that stress that they don't really express? And now it it shows up in different ways because the child internalizes it and then has different behaviors when they're struggling. And they're craving normality as well. Yeah. The next part is the when do you find is the best age to start the transition of care conversation? So the transition conversation, I think that word transition, while it that's the word that's needed that we use right now, it sounds like it's it's much more immediate than it actually is. Transition sounds like it's going to happen in a month, in a year. But I would say that transition is a discussion that starts when a child is hitting 10, 11, 12 years old, because every system is so different. Yes. The, the interval that 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 child and family may be interfacing with a group such as my multidisciplinary group may start to have longer intervals. So if you add up that a child is medically doing well and is having, you know, a visit maybe once a year, every six months, that's only a few visits to have many discussions about understanding and bringing that understanding to the child and the family of how will the child begin to interface with adults in the adult medical setting? Does the child understand their own allergies, their own medical condition? Have they understood how to express themselves in an emergency situation? Because that's really when you highlight that. So I can, I can say that that conversation should actually come, uh, should actually be initiated much, much earlier than we are on average. That's great. Now, what do you think were the recommendations from the adolescence side of things? So again, assessing and addressing bullying. Routine suicide screening. um, I did not highlight this when we were just discussing, but there is upwards of 15 to 30% of children in one or two studies who have expressed it, that population expressed a really high suicidal ideation, meaning that they wanted to end their life at some point. And so we routinely at the hospital, every child that is kind of over the age of 11, 10, 11, they are asked a series of questions to identify that for all patients. But I would say it's understudied but understanding uh, suicide screening, which is extremely important. And it's Suicide Awareness Month. Supervised peer support networks. So as adults, there's networks, families are able to get on Facebook groups, et cetera. But how do children and young adults incorporate into that? Every parent wants to know that their child is safe, how they're interacting with their peers, let alone somebody that they can't see, and keeping that discussion private, but what are they talking about? So I think a huge, huge, I'm going to put a little asterisk here for another study that at some point when, you know, Greg, your, your community is probably the best to have that discussion in, but safe, real conversations between child peers. Interesting you say that, because we tried this a couple of years ago where we came up with a teens group. Um, myself and a couple of other the adults, we we said we'd be the um, the admins to keep an eye on it, like you know, and and they didn't want the parents being a part of the group, which you can totally understand. But it got to 
after a few weeks, we we thought, well, we can have those groups, but then if they people these kids start talking to each other, we lose control, and you don't know what's going on outside the group, and it was it was just it was just too difficult to to manage. I thought, and and I didn't want a situation where. You know, because the kids at that age are vulnerable as well. Mm-hmm. And we just thought it's just going to be too hard. But how we get that a group like that together, I just, I just don't know. Yeah. And I think it's easier when you're eight or nine. I have a few families where the families have met through Correct. various yes. support groups. And then they're able to put their children in contact as this literally a supervised kind of either virtual play date or if it's across the world, or, you know, in person. But when you're a teenager, even a year difference, the difference between a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old can be massive for life experiences. And putting those same peers in contact, it just may not, it may be extremely valuable or invaluable, as they say, or it may actually not be um, the best decision. Yeah, it could be problematic. Oh, look, I, I, I know myself, I've, I've um, connected many families around the world where I've connected the mothers and then yeah. the kids come on and they, they might play in the PlayStation together or whatever. And that's, and, yeah. and the, but at least I'm comfortable. I know that there's parental support there, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, you know, um, I'm also going to talk about social media because that is a massive thing. Massive thing. And, Greg, you are, it, I I am so, you know, basically you've gotten me into social media because (laughs) you're showing content. I like medical things. I like what I do as a job, but it used to have this connotation that it was fashion or news or, you know, some, some group. And now you've mainstreamed the ability to actually have information that is public facing, meaning anybody can see new information studies, kind of what's happening in our community, but then also that dialogue in the background. But those social media channels, some of them change for who our teens are, for our kids. Right now, TikTok is the big thing, right? So it's this video content that's a few seconds, that's a few minutes. And there's been many, many really positive developments on some of the social media you know, mediums, because one child told us about one person that they're following who's normalized having a stoma and they're wonderful. And another, you know, another child basically talks about how their anatomic variations are. And because the algorithms at least can clean up really offensive, some of this content actually stays there and makes children at least give some support to young adults. Yep. And that's where it's all about if, if we can make one child feel like they know they're not alone. And that's why when the book came out with the sharing the stories and all that, and a lot of the parents say, oh, this is their child's book now. Well, they, they feel important because they feel recognised. So, And that's that's been such an important part. Okay, now we'll just go on to the young adulthood section, which what age would that be? We kind of made a cutoff right at around 15, 16 years old. Okay, good. In this section, we really found body image concerns, a lot of anxiety around personal relationships, 
questions about sexual function, reproductive concerns, and then finally the transition to adult care. This is again that word transition. I feel like we have a good start in assessing that there's a need to have better transition programs. But what's next really? Right now we have children's hospitals and we have adult hospitals. And there is a really different characteristic of a child who's had any type of surgery to just go to an adult hospital. I use a saying that Sebastian King once said to me, and it just makes so much sense. Pediatric colorectal surgeons reconstruct and adult colorectal surgeons deconstruct. (laughs) But they deconstruct in the setting of what is a surgeon. The surgeon is somebody who does an operation. So from my perspective, one of the most challenging aspects is that you have to find somebody who not only understands what the surgery it might've been, but then wants to preserve that surgery and manage what you're asking out of a surgeon. So I wonder in the future, I I believe that there is going to be a huge role to have children be seen by providers who understand pediatric anatomy as they transition to adulthood. And and this is unfortunate, but that's going to be, it's end up going to be the responsibility of the pediatric colorectal surgeons, isn't it? to yes. Yes. Um, connect these surgeons because the adult surgeons aren't going to come looking. Yeah. And, and it's, um, it's a lot of time on the phone, meaning you have to actually, as a surgeon, create that initiative to call, but then you're doing it across multiple specialties. Yeah. And what changes in America that is unique is that children at a certain point, usually after they've left the pediatric healthcare system, but not during it or not exactly once they leave, they may be on their parents' insurance or be dropped off at a mid, mid-20s point. And then there's differences in insurance. There's differences between states. So I'm right on the border of Kansas and Missouri, which you'd think reciprocity between states, absolutely not. So when you add those complexities, in addition to finding providers that are interested, collaborative, supportive, that's why I, again, put the plea out there for everybody to begin the transition conversations at the age of 12. Yep. Because I started, I've been in practice several years now, and there are children that I met upwards of three plus years ago, we had that conversation and we're now finding providers that are engaged, helpful, that the children trust. And those families have given, they've been absolutely love, lovely to work with, to, to, to watch that happen, to just basically say, I know that I want my child transition. Where should I go? And for me to say, I actually don't know where to send you and to put some of those calls in place, effort in place, because it doesn't just happen overnight. Well, I can tell you, until the probably the last five years, it wasn't happening at all, anywhere. Now, just one thing that I think really needs to be discussed in this part of it is the females with cloaca, because that is a really specialised and complex area, but especially when it gets to the adolescent, young adulthood age. Yeah. So 
there is actually some good literature or at least the articles were focused on females with cloaca so what what really was unique here is that there is a whole different set of providers that need to be in contact with those young adults many in a survey indicated that a psychologist would have been helpful and there are issues with understanding the child's anatomy and understanding their reproductive abilities what are they able to have a c-section should they undergo in vitro fertilization what will the success be and i'm going to kind of tangent underscore here and kind of go backwards a little bit that follow-up to actually have children come back gets more important for this population because children now become the young adults that need to understand some of their own anatomy because they're interpreting it they have to understand before they can just leave a system and have somebody new kind of counsel them and the other thing is too um we recently uh uh, presented a poster that hopefully will become a paper that speaks about different reconstruction needs and surgical needs for late adolescent females who have a history of cloaca or later diagnosed needs for reconstruction, you know, gynecologically. And there is a totally different conversation that occurs for these young females that is different than in childhood. In childhood, it's a conversation with the family. In young adulthood, it's a conversation with that child or female or young adult. They're talking about their own sexuality. What are they, what are their fears? How will the cosmesis look like? What type of results? What do they actually want? Because you, I don't think it's right to just say you should have this. And that's where my group really steps in. So. Oh, no, that's really wonderful. So what do you think is the, what were the recommendations that came out of the, the young adults uh, section? Yeah, so um, conduct private discussions about reproductive health. Does that include with their parents being involved or not? Without their parents being involved. Okay, that's good so, to quantify that. Right, so private parents should be excused. And again, that's trust that's built over several visits. That's not, you You don't show up, have everybody leave the room, say, hey, how's it going? And then have everybody pop back in. Refer for psychosocial evaluation and treatment. Again, making sure that these are not missed opportunities to address concerns and have better quality of life. Have a systematic and graduated planning for healthcare transition revisit transition plans and questions frequently, acknowledge patient autonomy in disease management and treatment planning. So understand that now a surgery that may have worked great for an eight-year-old may either no longer be applicable or may not be desired at all by an 18-year-old. Now, we've covered each of the sections. So we get to the conclusion part of it. What did the team come to as a conclusion of what we're to do moving forward in our community? So the recommendations for moving forward are essentially to incorporate and understand all of these factors as they relate to the different 
age brackets. Understand that there are different concerns based on the family and the child and their chronologic slash developmental age. Understand that there's a lot of optimism. There was 62% of adolescents and 71% of children remain optimistic about the future. So to put those conversations properly in the context of what's happening, that there is an optimistic future. That's wonderful. Only- that is, that, that's the best, oh, I reckon that's fantastic. Yeah. It- Considering all we've spoken about, the, for the kids to actually feel that optimism is just wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. And it will give parents a hope too. Yes. And that if we as providers, if we as support parents, other people in the community, if we understand that, that we can help guide and support and address specific concerns and issues early in a way that's helpful to make that most seamless kind of childhood experience. It just validates everything about what you say when you first meet the parents of the child say this is i'm going to be with you for a long time and it's incredible it's not just a surgical it's the whole gamut isn't it yeah and i always try to tell families because they say to me after we've met each other a bunch of times kind of early on in in infants or you know we kind of right up right around the toddler years they say to me so what does follow-up keep looking like And I say, you know what, even on a good year, we want to at least check in once a year because of this very paper. There's changes, there's differences. There's a concern that you have as a brand new parent that is not the same concern that you have at six, at 10, at 15, at 18. Yeah, I always like to say to parents, don't think too far ahead, just live in the moment. Yes. Uh, And this really proves it because challenges keep on coming, don't they? Yeah, they, they do. They do. But understanding what they are, I think, can be, especially for providers, I don't think we should throw everything back on the families. But just saying, we will be in touch. You do belong to our community. We guide you and help you and support you through this understanding that there are differences. As far as you, you yourself and your team, how did this report impact on how you view things now? So I, in, in the beginning of the pandemic, we switched very quickly um, and wrote a paper about multidisciplinary care in the virtual healthcare setting. And I, what our team has done more is to understand that there are not physical barriers to multidisciplinary care. And that has translated into reaching out to more providers and understanding that not every visit is an anatomy exam. Not every visit is an exposure of, the, of a bottom or a catheterization yeah. practice. But to have those multidisciplinary conversations that take place verbally, that take place through other means and across, across state lines, across... Because suddenly now all those, you know, you can only practice in your state. Those, those, some of those restrictions were lowered for a while. And that really opened up the ability to converse and to dialogue with families and other providers. And so I think that will be a wave of the future to say, 
an extension kind of of what you've already done, Greg, but now in the medical setting, kind of moving forward, we interface differently and it's not only about a surgery. It sounds like it's more of a welfare check these days as well. Yes. Yeah. Well, Rebecca, I can't thank you enough for the time, your valuable time that you've given us to talk about this. I just think this is really, really important subject. And this paper, I'll be sending the link to people if they want to refer to it. But I'll tell you what, it's in the Journal of Pediatric Surgery on June 12, 2021. As I said, thanks, Rebecca. It's it's. I think this is going to be one of the most important documents and papers that's going to come out in our community for such a long time. And I can't thank you enough for your time and the app. And please pass on the, my thanks and our community's thanks to all your team members. Thank you so much, Craig, for having me on the podcast. Uh, it's a wonderful. Okie dokes. Bye-bye.